0: My name is Davis Smith. I'm the CEO of Cotopaxi and an MBA graduate of the Wharton School. The Latter-day Saint MBA Society was founded by a group of Latter-day Saint MBA students in order to create a community of business people striving to bless the business world and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this podcast, you'll hear interviews with Latter-day Saint thought leaders that we hope will inspire you in your professional and spiritual life. For more information about the Latter-day Saint MBA Society, visit ldsmba.com. And now, I'll pass it over to Kurt Francom, who will host this week's interview.
1: Welcome to an episode of the Latter-day Saint MBA podcast. My name is Kurt Francom. I'm your host, and today we have Elder Kim B. Clark on, uh, on the podcast with us. How are you, Elder Clark?
0: Doing well, thank you. It's good to be with you.
1: Yeah, and I think this may be the inaugural uh, episode on this uh, new podcast venture that we're we're launching here. So no pressure at all, but we'll see we'll see how it goes. So um, many people, you know, are familiar with your history both in the church and at uh, Harvard Business School, and um, maybe just give us a, a background on uh, how your cr- career sort of went in this direction that uh, landed you at the the Harvard B- Business School. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, it it goes back a ways. Um, when I was in high school, I was raised to go to BYU. Yeah. Uh, no questions asked. In my family, <laughs> that was the plan. Um, but in my junior year, I started thinking about, I just had an impression I needed to look elsewhere and start exploring and uh, eventually ended up applying to Harvard College uh, to go to college there. I was accepted, small miracle. And um, I went and had an absolutely terrible experience my freshman year. It was just oh, wow. awful. I hated it. I was I was homesick. I didn't do well in school. It was really a bad year. No, no young missionary ever went on a mission more with more gusto and happiness than me. <laughs> so I, I served a mission in Germany and I knew it it became very clear to me in Germany and my mission that I I wasn't going to go back to Harvard um, after my mission. I was going to go to BYU. So I applied and But then it also became really clear I needed to go back to Harvard at some point. So I didn't want to go back there unless I was married. I didn't want to live in that environment on the campus. Yeah. So I was really blessed. I found my eternal companion at BYU. And I also found what I wanted to do in life. I loved my professors at BYU. And I decided uh, this is what I want to do. I want to be a, a university professor And I want to do it at BYU. So I went to Harvard College. And I actually, when I got back, I loved it. had a great experience. Stayed, did a PhD in economics. And I told Sue, the reason we're staying to do a PhD is so I can get a job at BYU. And so I did. I got an offer at BYU to go back and teach. But I also had an offer to go to the Harvard Business School. And um, that's where the Lord wanted us to be. Yeah. I prayed about it. And we prayed hard. And that was the plan. We're supposed to go to HBS. So yeah. I went to HBS and I loved it. It was such a fabulous place. I just loved being there. Um, I was on the faculty for 17 years and then became Dean of the faculty, uh, for another 10. Uh, and so I had 27 years at Harvard business school. It's a great experience.
1: I bet. So going back to your experience as a, as a student, um, because I'm sure many, you know, MBA students or or even undergrads who are, um, you know, starting in a new school, even one that's so prestigious, right? It's like you're there, you're, you're living the dream now you should love it. (laughs) Right. Any, was it just the environment that maybe you didn't relate to others or they didn't have your standards or what was it that just really made it so difficult?
0: Uh, it was some of that for sure. Um, but I think also it was that, um, though I had done okay in high school, I really wasn't prepared to do the kind of work I needed to do in my first year of college. Um, I did okay in some courses, but others I just didn't really didn't know what I was doing. And But I also think I was, um, you know, looking back, uh, in fact, one of my really close colleagues at BYU-Idaho told me this one day. He said, he said, you know, I think you had that experience. So the Lord was teaching you this is actually not your home. Hmm. Your home's in the church. And actually the church was my savior That literally that day, that, that year. I loved the, the, the ward I was in. And Sundays were like an oasis. It was just a wonderful experience. So, yeah. you know, it, it was a kind of learning experience. I but when I got back after my mission, I knew how to do the work and i was way more focused really intent on what i was doing i just loved it i had a great experience all through my time there hmm. so yeah
1: and obviously i would imagine you highly endorse uh, the mission service and but it's interesting to just hear how it blessed your academic life after that that uh, oh it was it incredible well.
0: i mean if you saw me as a freshman and just followed me around and then you saw me when i came back after my mission you would have said this is not the same person <laughs> Yeah, you know, it had a big impact. Yeah, that's great. Um, and
1: I asked you to maybe send me a few principles that come to mind as far as, you know, what what principles or thoughts would you communicate to other students, especially maybe MBA students who are striving for a, a, a long-term career in, in, in the business field and, and you know, striving for a really elite education. And uh, these sound fascinating. I'm intrigued by some of these. So the first one he said is, beware of Joseph syndrome. What's yeah. the Joseph syndrome?
0: So, Joseph is Joseph in Egypt. And uh, through really miraculous events, he became the second most powerful man in Egypt and saved his family and, and many others, the whole nation of Egypt. So, the Joseph syndrome is that we get the idea, get it into our heads, that uh, if we can get into positions of power, we can do great things for the church and for our families. And therefore, we kind of get the idea that if we sacrifice these, the things, like our family, the church, and so forth, on our way to power, it's okay. Like, and it gets down into very simple things, like I've seen it happen, where people stop doing their ministering visits. They, they spend lots and lots of time at work. They neglect their families. Uh, they, they kind of are semi-active in the church. But they become very successful in the the business world and in the idea. And they have this in their heads that they're going to do these great things for the church. And this is is a false doctrine. Hmm. Uh, The only way Joseph got where he was was by being obedient to the commandments of the Lord and by being absolutely steadfast in his faith. And so we just have to really be aware of that. And it's very intoxicating. Yeah, I saw this in action when I was in graduate school. I worked for a few few months in Washington, D.C. And there's a thing called Potomac fever where you get just intoxicated with being in Washington around all this power. The same thing happens in business. And so if you're not careful, you start to rationalize Spending too much time and focusing too much of your loyalties and your energies on things that are of the world, yeah. and you forget what's most important, and you rationalize it, and that's the joseph syndrome
1: nice that's that's fascinating and so in in your experience were the, did you have certain habits or routines, or uh, did you find yourself maybe slipping into that uh, that syndrome too far and and how did you address that or make sure that was in check?
0: So when I was in Washington, I mean, before before I went to Washington, D.C., I, I didn't really experience it because I was in graduate school. I was a, I was in a, a land of the barons, and I was a serf. And, <laughs> and it was really true. And so yeah. there, was no, there was no glamour in that at all. Uh-huh. But in Washington, I worked for the Secretary of Labor and got involved in all these really interesting things and wrote memos that became policy documents and did all this kind of fun stuff. And I recognized, oh, I know what this is. I recognized it, it was a blessing. This is Potomac fever. I got to get out mm-hmm. of here. And <laughs> I was blessed. My my boss, whose name was John Dunlop, he got fired by, or he actually didn't get fired. He quit his job as Secretary of Labor and went back to Harvard, and I went with him. And so I, I've, I escaped Potomac fever. But the, the, I think the longer term solution is actually one of the items that I suggested is a really important principle, which is you start out in life, you make the things that are eternal the framework of your life, and you make them fixed commitments. And they're simple things like reading your scriptures every day, saying your prayers, praying to the Lord, talking over things with him, uh, repenting every day, partaking of the sacrament, serving other people, taking callings in the church whenever you're asked do your ministering visits, you know, watch out and care for other people, go to the temple, participate in those sacred ordinances. This is build that into your life. This is how, this is what my life is. This is the framework of my life. I spend a lot of time at work, but I, I do all these things. I make sure that my life's like, and some of it is also like your family and having a date night with your wife. And in my case, wife and um, you know, and spending time with your kids and working with them in the yard and, Playing golf with them and going on vacations and doing stuff and and you build your life around that, and work supports it. It's but work is not your life.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I would imagine like this this pathway of of a career, uh, you know, having you know g- gaining an MBA or a. A per, you know, going to a prestigious university and that leads into prestigious opportunities and they're exciting, they're engaging, and it's maybe easy to sort of say, you know, I'm at Harvard right now. Like this is, I'll get to those things later on in life. But right now, like this is exciting and I can really make a difference here and or make a difference down the road, right?
0: Yeah. In fact, what happens is you don't realize uh, in these in these years, these formative years, that you're actually establishing patterns that are going to last. Mm. So it's a mistake to imagine that, well, I'm gonna live my life this way while I'm in school or I'm I'm in my early career, and then later I'll do this. Yeah. That doesn't work. You gotta establish yeah. it early on that this is how we're gonna live our lives together. We're gonna to do this and this is how my, my life's gonna be.
1: Yeah, you can spend a whole lifetime waiting for life to slow down. So exactly. you can do
0: those things it doesn't are- slow down. In yeah. fact, it's really funny. I talked to, you know, when I taught and I teach now, I teach MBAs. Now And, you know, sometimes I get this idea that um, this school is not real life and I'm so busy and I'm working so hard and, you know, I, I can't wait to things, you know, kind of get more, you know, kind of regular. It's like, what? You're crazy. <laughs> I yeah. tell them this. You're totally yeah. crazy. Life gets worse. You don't, it gets more complicated, not less. You'll look back on your MBA years and think, "Oh, wow, that was so relaxed and so <laughs> great." What? Look at what I'm doing now. You know, I mean, at one point in my life, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get tenure as a professor at Harvard. I'm uh, on the high council. I've got and I've got uh, home teaching assignments, and we have seven kids, and wow. we're it's like craziness. You know, and we, and we, so, and fortunately we had started building that foundation early. So we had that structure in our lives and said, no, this is how we live our lives. Yeah. And you, know, you have to say no to things. You have to have, you have to have approaches that said, no, I'm not doing that. And just trust the Lord. He'll bless you because you're going to do the right thing.
1: Yeah. I would imagine that's the tough part, right? It's not necessarily saying yes to the callings and the scripture studying those things, but it's more of like saying no to other things. So oh, that there's yeah. actually space for oh, that. Oh, Totally. Right? Yeah, totally. Yeah,
0: yeah. You have to say no, and you know, and it's hard, and it takes great faith. But that's yeah. what life's about.
1: That's right. That's right. Anything else as far as the the Joseph syndrome that we haven't touched on? Or did we? No, it it's great. Well? Cool. Um, the next one, next uh, principle you put is watch out for the the lure of the inner circle.
0: Yeah. So this is, exists in all organizations, and it can be very productive and very. Very effective, but basically each organization has an inner circle. These are the people in the organization that really have influence and power. They have, uh, you know, they basically are the people running the place. And sometimes that inner circle is very small. Sometimes it's a little bit bigger, but there's always one because that most organizations have it, you know. Like Mm -hmm. this, and when you join an organization, it becomes real clear to you really quickly, where the inner circle is, and who's in it, and who's not. And there's a lure. There's this thing that kind of grows up in you that I want to be in that inner circle. I want to be part of that. And uh, that can be healthy, because sometimes the inner circle is really great. Uh, The people are terrific. And you do have a lot of influence and ability to shape the organization. It's a great thing. But it, it can be a really deadly thing if mm. the inner circle requires you to do things that are counter to what you know is right. And that can happen. And sometimes it's very, very, um, it, it seems very benign. Yeah. Okay. But it can become really not benign. So here's a good example. Actually, my son f- experienced this. My son, Andrew, went to Harvard Business School uh, about, let's see, how long ago? 2020. I think he graduated about 15 years ago or so. Anyway, he, he, um, he was uh, in this company in Boston, and he really liked the company, enjoyed the work. But it was real clear in that company that if you wanted to move up and really become one of the players – You needed to make sure that you had a lot of face time with the senior people.
1: Hmm.
0: And what that meant was you needed to be around when they were around. Well, it turned out they stayed late into the evenings Hmm. and they, they had this implicit rule. We want everybody else to be here when we're here. And it wasn't for any productive use. It was just sort of, you know, it's a sign of, do you really, you know, are you really committed to us? And so Andrew, he said, well, I'm not doing that. He had, you know, he was married and he had a couple of kids and and they were really little and and he needed to support them. And he just said, okay, I'll come early because that works great for my family. So I'll get up early. And he did. He got up early. He was at work really early. Almost no one was there. Got a ton of stuff done. It was really productive. But he left. <laughs> he, he said, I'm leaving. Yeah. He'd leave at 5.30 or 6 or something like that. And the guys were there until like 8 or 9. He wasn't doing that. Well, it became clear to him in his performance reviews, subtly, um uh, well, we love your work, Andrew, but you know what's this with your you know schedule you know what 's going on and It became clear that they didn't like it, and so he realized, I am in the wrong company, yeah, and he started he and his wife prayed about it and he started looking for another job and he found a great job, turned out to be in Utah, and he moved back to to Utah from from Boston. But you know that happens all the time. If you're in places like FaceTime, then sometimes it's other things. You know, you gotta be, you gotta join this organization because this is what we do. You know, we support this outside organization. It takes additional time, and we want this. There's all sorts of stuff like that. Right. So just be careful. Is the watchword that don't get caught up in that stuff, and hopefully you'll work for companies where they what they really care about is, you know. Your performance and how well you do in your job, and how creative you are, and how productive you are, and they—they they don't really care about all this extraneous stuff that doesn't make any difference. So,
1: yeah, and I love that example uh, where in a professional life you oftentimes get to a point where you think this just isn't the company for me. Like I realize there's sort of these unwritten rules that right. I'm supposed to do, and at some point you have to look yourself in the mirror and say I'm in the wrong place, and right there, there's other opportunities out there that may be a better
0: fit. Right, right, exactly.
1: Yeah. Um, next principle you listed was uh, build up your walkaway fund. I mean, maybe this yeah, well, you a
0: just is a great segue, right? Yeah. Yeah. So sometimes you want to walk away because you realize it's in the wrong company, but there are times when you need to walk away because you discover that the people running the place are crooks hmm. uh, and dishonest. And there's corruption that you don't, you didn't realize and there's bad stuff going on. You got to get out of there. Um, the, the classic case I tell is about a young man I know who didn't do that and was asked to sign a document, uh, certifying the, you know, the quarterly report, uh, in, in a company. And he just had real misgivings about the numbers. He kind of knew these are not the right numbers. Hmm. This, This isn't real. But he was under tremendous pressure. He had a mortgage. He had kids. He, you know, he just and he signed it, and he ended up going to prison. Oh wow! Really? Not uh-huh. not just like you know a couple nights in jail, but three years in prison. Uh-huh. And so he had a felony conviction. You know, it's a felony. And uh, but he had he had great friends from from business school who took him in and put him to work, and he's doing great now. It's going really great. But, you know, he just says, man, I wish I had not signed that document. Yeah. But, you know, the pressure was um, he didn't have a walking away fund. If he had a walking away fund, he could have said to the guys, guys, these are not the right numbers. And if we publish this, this is going to end up in the SEC and they're going to investigate. People are going to run wonder. And we could all go to jail. So I'm not signing this. Hmm. And then they could have said, well, if you don't sign it, your time here is over. You're fired. He said, great. See you later. Yeah, In right. fact, I'm leaving right now. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and off he goes. And he yeah. loses all of his benefits and stuff. Fortunately, his, his 401k might go with him, but you never know. Right. And, right. But he's got enough money put away. He can pay his mortgage and keep the lights on and put food on the table for the next, you know, few months, where he can look for another job. Yeah. So I think, you know, and you know, another I, I, there's a great case at Harvard Business School this very thing about a young woman, very talented, gets caught in a situation in a consulting firm where she's asked to go get data on a competitor of their client by uh, subterfuge by lying and cheating
1: mm-hmm.
0: and she gets really uncomfortable she does it a little bit she feels terrible she decides i can't do this and she goes in and she quits but she doesn't have walking away money mm-hmm. and it takes she ends up living with, going back home living with her family because she doesn't she can't she can't afford to live anywhere else And it takes her five months to find a new job. She finally finds a a good job, but it takes her five months. Yeah. So get yourself some, you know, put away, you know, absolutely intentional. Every month we put this much away into our fund and build it up. Whatever your expenses are you think you need, however long you think it's going to take you to find another job.
1: Yeah. And we often tag that as an emergency fund, but I love the idea of the walkaway fund because that sort of – uh, brings the ethics into it. Like when you're faced with a ethical dilemma and you do need to walk away, like we all hope that we wouldn't sign that document, but when that right. pressure's there, oh, it's yeah. uh man, you're just setting yourself up to, to make Sorry. a d- difficult decision. But if you
0: so, know you're not putting your family at risk, yeah, you can, it really helps you to do the right thing. Yeah.
1: Next principle you put, to, takes us to the scriptures. Uh, remember Jacob too, a yeah. passionate prophet.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, um, Jacob too, I'm just pulling it up here. Jacob two has tremendous advice for uh, for students. In fact, I, my dear brethren, oh, that's President Nelson. Sorry. (laughs) Uh, So Jacob two has tremendous advice for uh, many of our brothers and sisters who are going to find themselves in positions where they are going to make a lot more money than they ever imagined. -hmm. And they've got to figure out, you know, what am I going to do? And this is Jacob's advice. He says, um, uh, Think of your brethren like unto yourselves, and be familiar with all, and free with your substance, that they may be rich like unto you. But before you seek for riches, seek ye for the kingdom of God. And after you have obtained a hope in Christ, Ye shall obtain riches if you seek them, and you will seek them for the intent to do good, to clothe the naked, to feed the hungry, to liberate the captive, administer relief to the sick and afflicted. So his warning is, and this is what Jacob 2 is is in this, this context, is, look, um, you may, depending on the choices you make, you may uh, be blessed with a lot more a lot more uh, money than you've ever imagined, but really be careful because don't let it get into your heart. Hmm. And one way is to follow Jacob's advice. That is to be generous with other people and to use your resources in ways that, you know, are productive for other people. And so you take care of your family you pay your tithing. You gen- you give a generous fast offering. You you know you support other organizations that are doing good things. You try to be the kind of person that is uh, a great disciple of Christ.
1: Yeah. And it, is there any like uh, early on? Because especially maybe in those early years of just graduating, you're <laughs> you know, you're paying back maybe student loans or things where that generosity hasn't the, the money isn't there yet to do that. And anything you suggest as far as establishing those earlier on or is it just like you said those little uh you know the simple habits of paying tithing and generous fast offerings yeah so
0: for sure you you definitely start by paying your tithing and give a generous fast offering i mean that's the thing that that makes the difference uh that's establishes that pattern and then as time goes on you look for you look for ways that can uh where you can uh help other people in other ways. And yeah. uh, and sometimes that comes with your time, you know, using your own time as a way to really, uh, help others in your service in various ways. So,
1: yeah. Uh, next principle you, you put down here is, uh, you are an equal partner in your eternal family and you have a few, uh, subcategories there, but, uh, but yeah. How, how how's you been able to establish that?
0: So, well, first of all, uh, if you if you marry, you are going to be the equal partner with your spouse and, you, and and your long-term objective is to create an eternal family. But it's really important to remember that your eternal family is actually now, that you are, uh, and and even before you're married, I think it's really wise to think about, okay, I am either, a husband and father, or a wife and mother in an eternal family. I may not know who they are yet, but I that, that's who I am. That's actually my eternal identity. And if you are married, you already know who they are, at least some of them. You know who yeah. your spouse is. You may not know who your children are yet, right. all of them, but they come and you meet them. And uh, these are your this is your eternal family. So this is this is your eternal family. you look at your family as an eternal unit, and that change that's a really important perspective to have about what you're doing and why you're doing it. Um, and the things that I think help you uh, to do that are uh, one is we've sort of talked about is making the eternal things in your life, the framework of your life. So that when I say framework, I mean, these are things you do on a regular basis as kind of fixed commitments all the time. So being in the scriptures, praying, serving in the kingdom, repenting, um, partaking of the sacrament, being in the temple, all these things. These are things you do regularly, mm-hmm and you build them this kind of this is our framework so every morning at this time i get up i read my scriptures we have family prayer we have family we eat together we have family prayer at dinner we have scripture studies as a family we go to this temple at certain frequency we serve this is when i do my ministering visits this is my stuff and so you build this framework in your life and then your work is inside that and you you bound it and that takes a lot of work and effort, but you do you learn how to do it. Yeah, and there are you know different ways you can do it, but people learn how to do it.
1: Yeah, I, I love that that visual of the the framework. Then sort of gives you control over those other things, rather than the opposite. You don't want to <laughs> try and fit uh, the the eternal things in a business framework or that's a right. framework.
0: And right. but a lot of people do that. Yeah, a lot of people get so consumed by their work, their work just takes. Is, is their life. And so then they try to fit in these other things where what I'm advocating is, no, no, make the eternal things your frame. And then the other stuff fits in there. Yeah. And so you say, well, oh, I'm really sorry. I can't do that dinner Friday. Cause that's temple night. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm not coming. And they say, well, what do you mean? It's a really important class. Say, I'm sorry. I'm going to the temple. And, or sometimes you talk to your wife and you say, look, I think I need to do this thing on Friday. Can we go to the temple Saturday? And she says, yeah, I think we can do that. It's fine. And so, okay, we'll do that. But mostly it's Friday. Right. But sometimes you have to say, no, I'm not going that. Because really in your heart of hearts, you don't want to do that anyway. <laughs> right. And he <you> said, <laughs> I'm not doing that. <laughs> but, you yeah, know, yeah. you build your life like that. But sometimes it's just, it's not like you're being asked. It's, it's the, you have to manage your internal drive. Yeah. I mean, I was in a, I was in a profession where it's very competitive like, if you want to get ten as a Harvard Business School professor, it, there's a whole bunch of stuff you have to do, and it has to be really, really good. Yeah. And that's a high standard. It takes a lot of work. Well, I was competing with guys who worked 24-7. They didn't have any of this stuff we're talking about. For them, it was work. That was it. They had no life other than that, and they just worked all the time. Mm-hmm. And they were really, really smart and worked really, really hard. And so I had to – I just say no. I'm not doing that. I'm going to have a family. It's most important. And and then you pray. You say, Heavenly Father, please help me. You know, if I'm this is part of Thy plan for me, then please guide me and help me. Yeah. I had, I had a really good friend. I have a really good friend who gave me tremendous advice early on in my career. He said, Look, look, you're probably going to work. You know, 50, 55 hours, sometimes 60 hours a week. That's just the nature of who you are. You're going to work that much. And, but the most important time in your week is not how many hours he said, there are, there are the few hours in the week when you get the really crucial ideas that make all the difference. And they come, they come kind of like revelation. He said, so live your life to be worthy of revelation. And it makes a huge difference. The Holy Ghost knows way more than you do about what you're trying to do. And the Holy Ghost will teach you. And it comes at key moments. And that's true in any job. And, you know, it turns out that that was great advice. And it's true. Yeah. So Build that frame. Live inside of it. Trust the Lord. Pray for the Holy Ghost to come. You can also pray for angels. That helps, too. Yeah, I
1: bet. And, and I love that, that the framework, if you establish that framework, it creates space for that inspiration or revelation to come. Where if you're just, you know, your nose is <laughs> in your email inbox all day, every day, or you're at work and you don't create that space, sometimes you'll miss it because you're not listening right.
0: for it. That's absolutely yeah. correct.
1: And, you know, going back to the lure of the inner circle, sometimes when <laughs> it feels like, no, I got to be at this Friday, you know, dinner because of the lure of the inner circle. Right. I would imagine After saying no to those or pushing back because of this framework you've set, you gain some level of respect amongst that organization. And if you don't, again, it may not be the the company for you, right?
0: Yeah. So I'll tell you a a cute story about Mitt Romney. Mm -hmm. When he was early, early in his career. So right out of business school, he worked for BCG. And he recognized right away that uh, he had to put some limits on the whole situation, and so he he basically told them, "I I'm going to work with clients that are one plane flight away from Boston, and so that I can get to the client and back in one day."
1: Hmm.
0: And so you draw a circle now. Bo- now, fortunately, that's a pretty lucrative circle. So it takes up, you know, it's basically yeah. Washington, goes down to Washington DC and out to pits and maybe Chicago. And, you know, that's that quadrant. He said, I'm going to work with companies in that quadrant and I'm not working with anybody else. And that way, and he did that off. He often did that. He would fly out. So he never, almost never in his career did the typical fly out Monday, come back Friday. Oh yeah, He was always going back and forth.
1: I think he does that now, but you know that's just part of the job. (laughs) Yeah.
0: Anyway, but he said he set those, and he was good enough at what he was doing, and they wanted to keep him. They said okay, and it worked out great. Yeah. You know, he had a lot of great clients, did great work for BCG, and then helped get Bain Bain started, and then Bain Capital, and there you. He did pretty. Then he went into government stuff. Right.
1: Right. And I love that. Just like early on, like being intentional of setting those boundaries, whether it's at school or in your career and, and saying, these are the boundaries I'm going to set because of the framework that, that we're establishing.
0: So yeah, that's awesome. And and a key thing that we don't want to pass over is you This has to be done. If you're married, this has to be done with your spouse. Yeah. You have to negotiate this and make it so it fits with your family life.
1: Yeah. Love that. Um, so I'll come back to your last principle here as we, as we wrap up, but I want to just ask you like, from your experience of being the Dean of students at HBS, like what, what did you learn there about MBA students or students in general that, uh, and maybe this spills over your time at uh, BYU, Idaho as well. But, uh, from that perspective, what did you learn or what additional guidance would you have for students from that perspective?
0: So that's a really interesting question. So let me, let me go back even before I was Dean, uh, at HBS, I learned a really important principle. um, as a teacher. And that was trust your students. Hmm. And what that meant was that in, in that kind of teaching environment, it's very, it's a case method teaching. And so it's a very give and take and, and you really depend on students to speak and so forth. And there are always crucial moments when someone will ask a question or make a comment and there needs to be something said to move the discussion in the right direction and it's the it's the tendency of the teacher to step in and say that okay so this is a this is like a really good lead into this other stuff but so you step in and you start talking and what i learned was no like if somebody says something that's not correct trust your students you can say things well what do you think about that? And then look to the students to respond. Mm. And very, almost always, the students will figure it out. And almost always, the students will come and they'll catch the right moment and they'll do it. But if you don't give them that opportunity, if you as the teacher are always stepping in and telling them what the deal is, they don't learn as much. They never have that experience of really thinking about, uh, what's really going here and how should I deal with this? And the learning goes down. So I, I think that's a, that's a true principle, um, because it's, it has a counterpart, which is the students need to do enough work and be, be prepared sufficiently that they can play that role in the, in the discussion. And in fact, that's a that's a simulation of important things that go on for students in when they get into the business world or whatever kinds organ, of organizations you're in. Actually, it works in any organization, whether it's your family or the church or anywhere. Yeah. And that is you prepare yourself well enough that you can answer these, these these three questions that are like the key questions for leaders and for students as well. First is, What's my purpose? Why am I here? What am I, what am I trying to accomplish? What should I accomplish? Two, how can I lift and strengthen the people around me? And three, how can I add value? And if you've prepared well enough as a student that you can answer those questions, you're gonna have great learning experiences in your classroom. And when you get into the business world, those questions will come naturally to you and you will give great answers. Okay, this is my, what's my purpose eternally? What's my purpose in this organization? What's my purpose in this situation? You know, how can I lift and strengthen the people around me? Because there are people that need lifting and strengthening. And if you get known to be somebody who lifts other people, that's what we call leadership. Yeah. And then, you know, if, you, if you're if you always asking, how can I add value here? Well, some of it's doing your own work, but there's, you know, you can do your work poorly or well you can see opportunities to improve things there's there's just a, a lot of ways you can add value and that's what i learned you trust the students they prepare they they figure out how to you know make those contributions that make all the difference in a class and the same thing's true in business as a leader you trust your people but you help your people understand they need to prepare and be ready to answer those three questions at all times
1: Mm, that's great advice. Awesome. Love that. Um, and I'm just curious, like being at such a prestigious business school with, you know, you've mentioned the competition. And I mean, I would imagine just the overwhelm that some students feel, especially when they sort of feel like they're falling behind their classmates. And, you know, it can be just so high pressure. And any any advice you'd give to students who maybe feel like they're in that, that stage where, man, I'm supposed to be performing at a top level and I'm falling behind and, you know, wh- what do I do?
0: Yeah. It's a really common experience. There, there's a, it's, it's a true story too. They, in the old days, the faculty used to be pretty harsh. This is now back in the fifties, a long time ago. President Iring talks about this because this happened to him in his class. You know, mm-hmm. faculty would walk in and they'd say to you, okay, everyone, I want you to look to your right with the person on your right. Look to the person on your left. He said, one of you is not going to make it. <laughs> <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> so we don't do that anymore, oh good, <laughs> because we don't actually believe that right uh, yeah. we've come to a very different point, so that was like a you know up or out kind of thing yeah, and what what I've learned is that um, every child of God is born to learn every single one every one of us has potential to learn more and perform better than we can imagine. And uh, if you're in a situation where you're not doing well, you feel like you're falling behind. um, There are things you can do personally in your prayers and turn to your heavenly father for help. You can work hard and try to learn and you can seek help in the institution. There are friends who will help you. You can find classmates who will support you and help you. Um, You can find tutors and other people in the university that will help you. So there are ways to do this. But the most important thing is to have the hope that comes through the Savior and have the confidence that comes in him, that he will help you and bless you to do, to do, because you're not an admissions mistake. You have the capacity to do this. And this is what it means to grow and learn and you know, go to work and go to work with faith, and you'll do fine. You're going to be okay. There's so many stories of people who, you know, at HBS, at, at BYU, at BYU, Idaho, where you know, people struggle a little bit with this, and then the angels come. And sometimes the angels are in their class. Sometimes they're, you know, second years. Sometimes they're people in their ward. I mean, they just, you pray, the Lord will bless you. And um, I know that's true. I mean, I've just seen it so many times.
1: Yeah. Uh, what what would you say about you know you look at the demographics of Latter Day Saints as far as uh, you know business school MBA school um, and it's obviously very heavy uh, uh, male heavy as far as uh, the those that attend business school if there's uh, women out there that are considering business school or, or trying to find their place there any encouragement that that you'd send to them
0: yeah I mean. Uh... First of all, it's a great degree. It's a really wonderful degree. And what you learn can bless your life uh, in everything you do. So if you have an interest in that, in organizations, and, and you, you clearly have leadership capacity, it's a great degree. Uh, we're, we're seeing more and more women who are choosing this path which is good because we need more and more women in everywhere in the world to do the things that uh, the Lord wants them to do. Yeah. Um, they have great influence and, and will have greater influence. We'll see. I mean, the prophecies about this are really true. If you go back and listen to what President Nelson taught about, a, you know, a prophecy that President Kimball made, many, many years ago that it was going to be the women uh, of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who are going to have a huge impact on the gathering of Israel, uh, both in their homes and in the world. And uh, we're starting to see the fulfillment of that prophecy. Yeah.
1: Before we wrap up, I want to make sure we uh, make time to just get your perspective and thoughts, maybe a story or whatever comes to mind as as far as your relationship with Clayton Christensen all those years at at Harvard. And Mm -hmm. I'm assume that was a, uh, a friendship that, that you remember well, and any, any thoughts come to mind as far as the inspiration that, that you gained from him?
0: Yeah. So Clayton, um, Clayton, and I go way back. Uh, we first saw each other in the fall of 1970 in an introductory economics class at BYU. Oh,
1: wow.
0: And, uh, Mitt Romney was in that class too, by the way. <laughs> wow. Interesting group. Anyway, um, not long after, Clayton moved back to Boston and went to HBS. And we, he was in our ward. I knew Clayton really well. Um, he went off and did things, you know, at uh, in Washington and and at BCG. And, and then he decided to start a company. I was on the board of that company. And then the company needed to make another turn he left the company and was wondering what in the world am i going to do he called me one day and um, i had told him many times clayton you need to be a a professor said you have every you have all the things it takes to be really great and so he called me and he said "I, i really think i need to get a doctorate and i said great so I called the head of the doctoral program who had known Clay as an MBA student and the head of the doctoral program said "Fabulous. He's in." I don't I don't <laughs> wow. think, I don't know if we know how to publicize this too much but I, I, he must have filled out an application but Right, right. <laughs> Anyway, they just admitted him cuz he was a phenomenal student. Yeah. And um, I became his thesis advisor as a hmm. doctoral student and um, he did this work on disk drives, and out of that came his you know, theory of disruptive innovation. Hmm. And, um, and, of course, he's a, a great friend. He's a tremendous role model. He's a phenomenal missionary. Yeah. Uh, he's a phenomenal missionary and great Latter-day Saint, Wonderful, uh, wonderful father, great person in the community. I mean, he was just amazing. And he was an incredible teacher. Um, and obviously, uh, really a brilliant mind. So, and I'm, I'm sad he's gone. I was at his funeral, you know, it's in February of just before COVID-19 hit Mm -hmm. in February of 2000. Uh, yeah, it was was last year, 2020. And, um, it was a really sweet experience to see the, his kids talk and, and, uh, President Iron gave a beautiful talk and, uh, it's a great experience in the funeral, but he's a great man. Yeah. And I'm sure he's uh, he's uh, doing great work in the in the spirit world and we'll, we'll be reunited someday and find out he's kind of converted all those people. And it's amazing. Yeah.
1: He's probably disrupting the, the economies of heaven in some way, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> he is so. amazing. And, it, you know, it's a great story about lifelong learning. Yeah. Because he did all this incredible work as a as a scholar and as a teacher um starting in the 1990s but by then he's you know it's 20 years after his mba and he's uh you know his book was published in 97 and you know by that time he's oh man by that time he's probably what 97 let me think uh 20 some odd years. Yeah. He's probably in his forties, hmm. late thirties, early forties. And he's, you know, he's, he becomes a star because he re, he repotted himself. You know, he re, he reinvented himself. He was, he had been a business leader, you know, star consultant, business leader, running a company and then he reinvented himself, became a great scholar and teacher. <laughs>
1: Yeah. So Yeah. I, I uh, didn't know him personally, but he, you know, you talk about lifelong learning. Like he always gave that impression. Well, he, he never gave the impression that he, he knew at all, right. He was always right. just always curious learned. and t- talking through questions and he's inspiring for sure. Um, well, Dr. Clark, this has been so uh, insightful and helpful. And I know many individuals listening to this will, will benefit from your guidance and, and advice. The last principle you put, I think would be uh, really great to sort of end on is, becoming a disciple, a disciple leader. Um, yeah. Expand on that. What,
0: how, how can students do that? So, um, this is the tagline of the course I teach at BYU now to, oh, cool. to graduate students, MBAs and others. It's the course is called leadership in the gospel of Jesus Christ colon becoming a disciple leader. And the idea is very simple. Uh, discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus Christ, a true follower of Christ, is leadership. If you become a true follower of Christ, you will become a leader, especially in your family, but also in the church and in other things you do. And uh, I teach the students that the better disciple of Christ you become, the better leader you'll be. Because the Savior set the pattern of leadership for us. He, uh, his, his life is a great course on leadership about how to lead people and um, as we learn the gospel and as we incorporate those principles in our lives and become true followers of Christ we become more and more like him and we learn how to lead like he led and that's what it means to become a disciple leader Thank you for listening to the Latter day Saints MBA podcast. Check out the show notes for more information about our guests and visit LDSMBA.com to find details about the Latter day Saint MBA Society.